Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Lux Files. I'm your host, Sean, and I have with me today author, psychic, TV personality, magician, clergy. I can go on and on and on, but they really don't need an introduction. <laughs> Michelle Belanger, everyone. Hello, hello. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Wonderful. All things considered. All things considered. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all you know, all those things being 2020, 2021, <laughs> everything in between. All things considered. That's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. I'm getting tired of this, this yeah. screen interaction, you know, that's. Yeah, I, I think tough. one of the things I miss the most is like, as the founder of House Kept Room with things like normally ritual would be held in my house mm -hmm. and like there's a whole section of the home that's dedicated to that yeah and right as the world went into lockdown was like right before our uh spring equinox ritual and i made the call like two days before of like no guys we i know we're not officially in lockdown but i think we shouldn't do this and we have not really done anything in person since then and it's just so hard it is. It is. Well, I'm sitting in my ritual room right now. And um, this is where I do like I make all of my products. And normally, uh, my group uh, tends to congregate here for for rituals, although we'll go, you know, um, some other members, they'll host on occasions. But um, yeah, this room has been uh, devoid of, of life, which is, uh, which is really unfortunate. I mean, maybe not devoid of life because I basically exist in this room and in this room only because I'm so busy with uh, with my yeah. business that I'm just. Yes, seriously, you know, it's just like candles, 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 incense, oh, candles, candles. <laughs> it, it's insane, and you know when um, when this first happened, like last spring, and uh, Canada locked down. It was the second week of March. The first two weeks were were fine, you know, normal business, and the last two weeks of March. It was as if I didn't even own a business because there was not there was no stores, there was no distributors, there was no online sales, and I really panicked there for that uh, for that yeah. two weeks because I'm like, I there's you know anyone who's a, a small business owner will know this one hundred percent. Small business owners don't have Plan Bs. No, there's, <laughs> there's no like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to shut down and go back to my previous job. Well, my previous job was in Texas and mm. I'm back in Canada. So, you know, it's, I mean, there's no plan B, but then um, my business just exploded, exploded to the point where uh, there was last October, I did more sales in that one month than I did in all of uh, 2018. Oh, wow. Like wow. It, it, yeah, no, it was, it, it last year just got crazy. And this year just as crazy. So uh, I keep telling, you know, uh, my friends when, when we're talking about this, like it, it's a double-edged sword because with us being locked down, like nothing's open here, nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, so everything is online. Yeah, there's there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. So if I'm going to be this busy, now's the time because it's not like I have anything else to do. But at the same time, this is when I need to hire someone and I can't, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a little tricky. Yeah, I know we ran into a similar problem with Inspiration House because we we purchased it in 2018. Mm -hmm. It's 150th anniversary was 2020. 
And right. there were a whole bunch of things that we planned for it and everything was just like off the table and it's just closed down. And it were, we were looking, you know, doing taxes and like looking over like what it did and didn't make last year. It was just like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> slowly kind of like climbing back out of that pit, but it, yeah. it did not do it any favors. No, no, no. It's uh, It's been something else, but you know, we'll get through it. Mm. Yeah, and, and we were lucky to be in a position where, like, it didn't, you know, ruin us to have a, a very, very lean year for, for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a little All you bit... can do is keep going forward. Yeah, I no, mean... absolutely. It's just, I'm finally at that point, you know, when people were, like, breaking last mm-hmm. fall, I was like, this this is easy. This is easy breezy, but it's, you know, since maybe I would say April, I'm like, I know I'm done. Like I have to admit mm-hmm. it. I'm not, I'm not doing great. You know, yeah. um, I I'm, I'm definitely at my, my breaking point. So, you know, this podcast, I think has come at the right time. Um, Cause I've been, you know, wanting to do it since like beginning of last year. And then as the mm-hmm. pandemic dragged on and, and not, um, being with people, it, the idea of it was more appealing because like more, to be able to have more conversation really. Um, and, but I kept putting it off. I'm like waiting for the right time when I'm less busy, which is just never (laughs) happened. So, uh, yeah. So I think starting it last month was uh, really good because it's been a, a fun distraction and, um, you know, doing like the promoting and everything and, and having the conversations. So it's, uh, it's a little, it, it's good medicine for me. Definitely. Definitely. So, which kind of segues way into uh, back to you because this podcast is certainly not about me. So um, the idea with this podcast is I'm having conversations with, with people in the occult community. I'm just using occult as a very generic yeah. umbrella term. Um, I'm, you know, I'm curious about people. I like learning about people and um, their experiences. So uh, my idea with this podcast is, is um, um, talking about, you know, that, that first moment in a person's life where they, that first magical or spiritual moment you know what that was what that was like and you know um just your path all the way to um five minutes ago you know books books that you know inspiring books inspiring people um traditions orders stuff like that so that's where we're going to begin we're going to begin right Mm. at the beginning i mean you know there's there's different flashpoints uh, of, of like revelatory moments uh, along a person's path. And, you know, coining the, the term awakening as it relates to, to certain sorts of like spiritual and, and psychic awakening. It's, it's not like you just have one light bulb. There, there's mm-hmm. multiple ones. So, you know, every interview ever that's talking to me about paranormal stuff, like they're like, when did you experience your first ghost? And like everybody, everybody has heard about the library lady at this point where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like four, maybe four and a half and the local library is haunted and I, I, I perceive a ghost. But at the time, I, I don't realize she's actually a ghost. Right. Um, and I'm not 
sure uh, at, at like the pre-elementary school age when the conversation about ghosts and psychic stuff happened, but it, it, it did um, in a limited fashion. Uh, now, I think it's important to know like adults treated me differently and we had different conversations because I was a child who was supposed to die at five. Right. I was not supposed to live past that age. Uh, and so people were willing to answer questions that they might not have uh, or uh, encourage experiences that they might not have uh, up to and including my mom's sweet talking people at an amusement park here called Jaga Lake uh, into having me ride a roller coaster, uh, an old uh, wooden style roller coaster uh, as a heart patient <laughs> <laughs> who was not, not big enough really technically to be able to ride the ride. But like I, I was there and my mom was like, my daughter's probably going to die when she has this surgery, like in the next couple of weeks. And she really wants to ride this roller coaster. So could we just please get her on here? And I rode the fucking thing like five times. Like I, I thought it was the best thing ever. Right. Um, so, so I got treated differently. I had different conversations than what you might expect. I think I was already kind of precocious to begin with. And that meant that I started a lot earlier with things than other people. So uh, in the 70s, there was a similar thing in television where there were a lot of shows about the paranormal and about the occult. This is pre-Satanic Panic, so it's actually cool and fun stuff. Like there were things in parapsychology and ESP. Um, there was, you know, Sasquatch and Bigfoot shows. There was, you know, In Search Of that was just kind of like all the different shapes, shades of weird. And there were, you know, fictional shows. And the one that I remember uh, that was probably weirdly formative for me was called Shadow Chasers. And it was on when I was in first grade and I was super into it to the point where I, with John Cecilla, who I'm, I wonder if he actually remembers this or not, we formed our own paranormal team. We, ah. were, we were our own little ghost hunters. How old were you? I, I was very, first grade. Oh. <laughs> I was in first grade. That's what, like six? Um, oh, let's see, what, seven? Probably seven. Okay. Six or seven. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, was kind of annoyed that they're really, like, you know, we'd go into the woods or like we'd go to the edge of the, the, the recess yard and just like, you know, it's not like we had equipment and it's not like ghosts would just pop out and say hello. Uh, and the thing was, like neither of us really wanted to make it make believe like like we wanted to go somewhere. But of course, we we're like very limited because we're in first grade. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the drive to explore stuff was there. And my family uh, I, I was raised mainly by my my grandmother, who uh, her last name was Mahoney. So they're they're Irish, um, first or second generation immigrants. Maybe I might be off with that because family stories were kind of only Aunt Rita was the one who seemed to keep track of anything, and she was always a little. Um, she had, as they call, the gift of gab. So I wasn't sure if the stories were stories or if they were history, and it was. Okay. Uh, it's only been currently as I've been like kind of research it to go. Oh wow. I thought she made that up, but that's, look at that, that that's real. Um, oh goodness. I mean, I was a reader too. And, and that's a huge part of my story. I was a very early and precocious reader, a voracious reader. And I was determined to get my hands on, on anything that looked interesting to me. Um, you know, I grew up in, in the house with my grandmother and the, the leftover school books and college texts from my mom, her multiple sisters, 
their brother who was in high school when when I was there and, and lived in the house. So like all of the summer reading and all of the college reading and then my great aunt Rita lived with us and she was getting her master's and PhD in psychology. So all of her textbooks were down there too. And I made no difference between what I chewed through. So like I was going through young <laughs> at an entirely inappropriate age. Right. Um, and Shakespeare, uh, I tried to read the Canterbury Tales when I was 10. Oh, Lord. Uh, that was the one that I was like, okay, this, this is, I, I think that this should be English, but it doesn't seem right. And nobody, nobody in the house could help me. Like, like it, it was, you know, it just not, not where my grandmother's wheelhouse was. Uh, but there were also, um, you know, various ghost stories. And I don't know like what it was with my school system. I went to a public school system. I'm in rural Ohio, not the place that you would expect to find books on by Sybil Leak mm. and, you know, books by Paul Hewson, uh, but they were in the library. And if I checked anything out, if it was weird and spooky, I read it. Uh, so I was, I knew what a spiritualist was and what table wrapping was uh, by the time I was 10. <laughs> and was was super into all of it and uh was also like trying to figure out like herbalism and witchcraft and and, and treading this interesting line between here's parapsychology and the study of these psychic things but here's also like a practical application of it and i don't know i guess all in all i was just a weird kid um but but delightfully weird and sometimes the things that i did worked right right i think we were all weird when we were kids yeah that's that's you know a qualifier really i was all about ancient egypt at that age i was obsessed mm. with ancient egypt to the point where i um my father would bring home roll ends of newspaper paper mm. um because i was uh, a voracious drawer and they're like okay well these newspaper ends we can get them for free from the local newspaper instead of spending ridiculous amounts of money on paper that I would just go through. And I, so I was so obsessed with ancient Egypt to the point where I'd get my friends to lay, like I'd unroll the paper, make them lay down like this, outline them and then Mm. draw uh, an Egyptian sarcophagus. So everyone got an Egyptian sarcophagus. So, you know, Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my paper that I drew on was Aunt Rita was a social worker at Cleveland Psychiatric, which was an asylum, um, Mm -hmm. an institute. And it was like all of these basically pink pads of like her, uh, the the intake examinations and (laughs) like assessments and stuff. And I just (laughs) flip it over and yeah, some some very weird stuff, I'm sure. (laughs) I could see you with those intake forms from an asylum as a kid getting your friends together and, and being like, let's play asylum here, fill this out. I, I definitely played doctor and not in the like sexy time sort of way. So um, as somebody who like the first five years of my life were pretty much in and out of hospitals. So right. one of the ways of like normalizing that for me was a lot of like doctor play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, here is what doctors do for you. And like, you know, get used to playing with syringes around you, not actual syringes, but toy things. So like I had a lot of toy doctor sets and things to just right. kind of be comfortable with that, yeah. which of course led to playing doctor with friends in 
more again not the like let's play doctor it was more like here i'm going to mime giving you a, a shot or playing or, or doing a, a surgery on you because that's my life like yeah. that's that's yeah. what's normal for me child's um, first electroshock kit mm-hmm. my, my other favorite thing to do with that uh unrelated to that was like i i don't know when i got into it because i've always loved horror and, and and gothic fiction as well like like and you know could obviously tell the difference but i would create these elaborate like haunted haunted attractions in the basement with like you know little ghosty things on wires made out of uh, uh trash bags and, and i didn't have a doll that did not get um mutilated in some way to look like a spooky thing like, yeah like that was just <laughs> I did the same thing. I was obsessed with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. I, I the the intersection of like games and role play and a horror and like Edgar Allan Poe and Bradbury, uh, the witches from Macbeth, and psychic stuff and paranormal stuff and like just and, and vampires too. Um, Christopher Lee's Dracula, particularly, and all the horror Hammer horror stuff. Like just this fascinating stew of my childhood and the fact that there was no there was no book that I was not uh, there was one book that I was not allowed to read um my grandmother I my grandmother loved Stephen King I grew up reading Stephen King at an incredibly early age and there was only one book that she wouldn't let me read and it was one of his collections of short stories and it was the one that had the story that got turned into apt pupil and to this day I don't know if it was off limits because of the Nazis mm. or because of the homosexual qualities in that story. And I, 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 I have no idea. She was just like, everything but this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything but this one. Huh, interesting. Like, it was fine. Cujo was fine. Like, I, I read that stuff at a really early age. <laughs> like, these things were coming out and I was reading them, like, as soon as they came out. So, um. That's just what I grew up with. <laughs> but at the same time, like the sort of stuff that I lived through in the hospital, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't scary to me right. as a result. Like I'd already dealt with the scariest stuff. Like, you know, we had deep conversations of you may die and this is what death is like and this is what might happen. And, you know, this is, these are consequences and, and those are heavy conversations to have before the age of five. Well, and how do you even process that at the age of five? Like you can explain to, you know, someone mm. who's the age of five, what death is, but they, they like, how, how do you even comprehend yeah. something like that? I think different, different kids will be at different stages and, and different ways of understanding them. I think that I was a little bit more together than, than most kids at that age for whatever reason. Mm. Um, there were a lot of... So, so I should say also like reincarnation is a, is a big part of things for me. And it's, there's a lot of good arguments with some of my early unusually precocious behavior that I was, I, I, adults would frequently identify me as old soul, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and I really did seem to approach the world a little differently. Right. Um, so, and, and you know, is it, is it because I died a couple of times before the age of five? Is it because I was going to like, chicken and the egg it kind of all of the above who knows yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) so with all of that you know thrown together in your childhood the 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 fiction and and the books and and everything 
how did that come together or did it come together mm. at an early age as like, um, like sort of like a, a sustained kind of cohesive magical practice or anything like that? Or did that come much, much mm. later? It, it evolved. Um, so by 13 or 14, I was like actively looking for and realized that there were people who practiced this stuff and that it was that it, there were elements that were real. Um, and I and I definitely danced back and forth because um, with Aunt Rita as also an influence, uh, there was a there was a keen awareness of the role that psychology can play in people misleading themselves into experiences, which mm -hmm. really shows in a lot of my writing. Where like I always like step back and go, okay, here's how we be here's how we can be objective about this, and here's how to analyze, and here is why it's important to understand how sensation and perception work in the human mind, how we process all this, because that's a part of it. Um, in the at that point, it's the early '80s, and um, we're starting to get into the satanic panic. And so stuff is not as easy to get a hold of. Uh, there's still a few uh, books on ESP and parapsychology, but like witchcraft and magic, uh, much trickier to get your hand on. Uh, weirdly, uh, one of the first things that I, that I was able to find was an old copy of Barrett's The Magus. And oh. I think it's only because Nobody at the Walden Books had the first clue what was going on with that book. So I, I had like Barrett's The Magus and I think Richard Cavendish's book on the Black Arts, which was at, I think I got it like a secondhand sale at one of the libraries. I love and that. I got my first, yeah, yeah, I, I just poured, poured mm -hmm. through it. Um, and I got my first tarot deck, uh, okay. which, you know, bought on my own and like tried to figure out how to work with. And I was aware at that point that I did not fit as a Catholic, mm. even though at the same time I was very active in my church. Uh, I was, uh, I started the junior choir, um, really big on like, like volunteer stuff, got very frustrated with my church because it became very obvious that like the most, the most visible people were the most hypocritical. And they, there were, there were, there was a lot of stuff that made me go, hmm, you know, first of all, I don't fit here. Second of all, you people suck. <laughs> right. Uh, there was an experiment that I did at my church. And uh -huh. um, I, I've considered going to actually going to confession um, at that church over it. Not that I feel that I need to confess, but that I feel like, like the current priest should probably hear about this. Okay. Um, so I experimented uh, while I was a tween in the junior choir. Um, with the idea of thought forms, oh. run across it, uh, and, and the idea of like, like if you put enough energy into something, like you could make something that people could experience. And so this is at the time where I'm starting to like get some training in actually how to do this out of books. Nobody's giving me any ideas of like what morality or ethics would be. So I'm just like, hey, I can do it. Let's try it. And I'm also still trying to be like, but I like some of the people in my church and like, there's, there's, there's things here. Like this is an outlet for my singing. So what if I gave the hypocrites something to believe in? Maybe it will like scare them into actually believing what they should be believing, which is being kind to one another. And like, okay. So our church being Catholic had this, somebody donated this enormous 
slightly bigger than life size, incredibly graphic, post-coital looking crucifix. So you've got, you know, G Jesus in all of his like ecstatic death glory on this thing front and center in the church. Um, and, you know, he's the only thing he's wearing is like a little bit of like just some flimsy white around his waist. That is that that crown of thorns, lots of blood, sweat and just this. Oh. So he's got his O face on up on the crucifix. So you just basically and, literally described a gay rave, but go on. Well, I mean, like, that, like yeah. the, there's a reason why there's so many Catholics that either come out of that <laughs> as like somebody in the kink community because you spent your whole childhood being told that this, this is perfect love. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like there's, there's a lot or, or you end up being witchy because the ritual and you like the idea of the ritual, but it, they just seem to have lost the, something with it. Oh, anyway, so. And I, I think I've only told this once before on any kind of anything. So okay. we're, we're getting some fun things. I spent all of the time in between singing when we're sitting there in the five o'clock mass for the junior choir, me and my two friends. And I would stare at that crucifix, trying to imbue it with just enough energy. So it would look like it would like maybe be breathing. Like maybe the blood was really like, like actually trying to give a, a sense of a miraculous thing. Okay. And I just took all of my like 15 year old focus and stuck it in that thing. Weeks go by. And then there's a day where we go in and the crucifix is not up anymore and nobody will talk about it. Uh oh. And I have to find out kind of through channels that they took it down because it was freaking people out because people were seeing stuff with this crucifix. So they brought somebody out to perform an exorcism on the poor thing oh. and smashed it, smashed it up in, in the garage of the church. Wow. So the moral to the story <laughs> is <laughs> don't do it on something they can destroy. I, I don't know. The moral to the story is, is with great power, it would be great if somebody had taught me some ethics while I was learning the stuff I could do. It helps. I mean, it, it definitely helps. Yeah. Um, it, it was, it, it was interesting to go like, kind of like try to figure out like, like what, what happened, what happened and go, oh, I think it worked. Those, those bastards, <laughs> I think it worked. And all they did was, was destroy it. Oh. Yeah. So there's your first act of magic and then your first um, occult detective mystery because you had to solve mm. what happened to the, the crucifix. Yeah. So there you go. But, you know, in a way that's kind of strange though because it's like, okay, well, if people are seeing Jesus on the crucifix breathing, let's say, mm. um, isn't that, like, doesn't the Catholic Church, like, aren't they into, like, oh, let's make money off of this. This is mm. now uh, um, a tour, I shouldn't say tourist attraction, but a tourist attraction. So come watch Jesus breathe. My conclusion was it was a little too creepy. Like, like putting it in a physical thing was a little bit too real. So my second thought, because they were feeding us on a lot of stuff on Fatima um, yes. and the Virgin and, and all of that was like, all right, well, if I put it in a physical thing and some of them are freaked out by that, Okay, well, they, the, the, uh, the logical conclusion is it works. So how about I don't put it in a physical thing so that they can't then destroy the thing that I did. So I, I focused for the next little while on um, basically creating a, a, a motherly figure, like, like something that would be this 
warm, almost golden presence, like, like conjuring all of the traditional Catholic ideas of the, the Virgin mm-hmm. as this supportive presence. My old Catholic church has a shrine to the Virgin Mary now because there were a lot of visions that started around a certain time period. Oh, and what time period was that, pray tell? It was when they had this junior choir with this this (laughs) girl who had the voice of an angel who actually literally got stalked by a couple of the former parishioners when they quit said Catholic church because it was not quite the same once they were gone. And I really, really seriously, I'm like, so should I just go to confession and say, hey, I did this thing, but, but at the same time, like, you know, clearly, like, the whole point was like, okay, well, if I, if I make a little seed and their belief can feed into it, like, just let it be what, what yeah. Aragorn is supposed to be. Like, like, let it, let it do its thing. So that, that happened, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, and, a few. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, so if people are, you know, now there's, there's a Mary shrine and people are, mm. do, I, I mean, I'm not sure what you do with, um, you kneel and you say the rosary a lot. That that is pretty much the Catholic solution to right. Like, uh, like they're married. Yeah. You are. I know they're not worshiping her per se or, or whatever, but but doing whatever they do at a, at a Mary shrine, they're feeding into that. Mm-hmm. Or it belongs to them now. Oh yeah, no, it totally does. So, but like I said, every once in a while, I'm like, mm, but should I? No, no, that's 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 fine. Like if it's yeah. if it's working for them, that's cool. Yeah, it's probably the well, closest yeah. thing to a goddess they're going to get. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, it, they've been feeding into it. They're getting something out of it. It's almost like it, it like it doesn't really belong to you anymore. It belongs to. Oh, them. yeah. No, no. So no, and, and so it's it's I, I wouldn't see the need to be like, oh, you know, just FYI, I did this thing. Yeah. By, by the way, I think maybe I had something to do with that. Yeah, it, yeah. Mostly it's it's the, the complication of like, you know, I when because you know we we see it we see it on witch talk now like you see the kids who like they're they've got a lot of spark and a lot of power but like not a whole lot of common sense and they don't know how to sort through the sources uh Mm -hmm. they get a lot of conflicting sources it doesn't mean they can't do magic and actually in some respects when you don't have boundaries you do some of the most potent magic yeah because it doesn't even occur to you that you shouldn't right or that you can't yeah you just you're like this seems like a good idea. Yeah. And off you go. Yeah. Probably I wasn't, that wasn't, that was my first like really big, oh shit, that worked magic. But I mean, I kind of experimented on, on friends a lot. Like, you know, uh, I was raised female. And so there were occasionally sleepovers and sleepovers among female people at that time period inevitably ended in either games of light as a feather uh, or like seances or playing with Ouija boards. And I pretty universally used that as uh, a way of kind of like stepping back and observing like when people were clearly lying to themselves and making stuff happen or like sometimes stuff that really looked like more psychokinetic, but they Mm -hmm. just took it for ghosts because they were so excited about what they basically kind of like experimenting with like what what are people doing and how are we doing this? And is there a way to influence it from, from like standing over here in the corner? Mm. 
interesting. Now, as an aside, quickly, uh, because you know you were talking about like the beginning of the Satanic Panic and you know books, you know, becoming hard to to come by. Mm. Do you think that the '80s and '90s, that you know, real um, surge of very you know harmless looking white light new age um and you know do as thy will but what, what's the wiccan read harm none do um uh, and, it, as, and it harm none do what the or, and it harm none in word thought, thought or deed do what thou wilt yeah do you think that was born out of the satanic panic like do you think if the satanic panic never happened that 80s, 90s, very, you know, um, uh, glittery, um, pretty, happy, new age phenomenon wouldn't have been, wouldn't have existed or wouldn't have been as, as, as big of a focus? I absolutely have viewed that like kind of hyper white light approach as a pendulum swing and, and a direct reaction to the satanic panic mm. uh, where for folks who, who legitimately wanted to practice or maybe who had been practicing were, were so felt so beholden to be like, no, we're not that we're this right. That, that they had to like, you know, expunge in some respects things. No, no, no. There's that, that, that horn God, that's, that's not Satan. So we'll just stop with the horn God and we'll just stop. Okay. Well, we, we won't wear black because you think black is bad. Like, like, let's just start to move all of that out. And you see it in the new age community as well, where it became so, so hyper white light that whatever else was going on there, it really just turned into basic to, to, to repackage Christianity. Right. Uh, like, like, right. Uh, into, up to and including Christ consciousness and Christ becoming one of the channeled ascended masters. So, right. so it was, it was a fascinating impact. And it's, it was really interesting to sort of see the division because the stuff that was published in the seventies and that was more widely available at that time was much more openly, um, I don't want to say dark, but gray. Yeah. Uh, not so saccharine. Yeah. Uh, Sybil Leak, I remember seeing stuff by Gerald Gardner, um, Paul Hewson, which was uh, his his stuff was much more like here's just some traditional witchcraft stuff. There was there was no um, it was not what we used to call Junior Woodchuck fluff witch. <laughs> junior Woodchuck, I like that. That that's that's that sounds very eighties reference there. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I was born in seventy eight, so all of the you know like the the seventies books and whatnot. Um, I have to you know go back and and you know find them used and whatnot. Mm. And uh, there's such a clear division mm-hmm. you know, with with the output then and then um, during and and post satanic panic two very very different different uh systems almost no it it was was fascinating just to see like when i was in elementary school uh we legitimately had a teacher's father-in-law teaching like an enrichment course on parapsychology so i got to take parapsychology twice kind of as as something adjacent to my public school schooling and then by the time i was in high school 
the gym teacher tried to teach us yoga and there was a hue and a cry that yoga was clearly satanic because it wasn't Christian and people were completely losing their panties over it. Right. Uh, And it was like, it was night and day. Well, I just recently learned that there's a state and I can't remember what state it is where yoga, it was. I think it's Arkansas. Arkansas. Okay. That sounds Arkansas. Where yoga is act, there's a law mm-hmm. criminalizing yoga in schools. Yep. I, yep. Like I, yeah. I, what? It's weird. No, it's it's super weird. Like you know, I I graduated my high school. I I got um, the first book that I was that I appeared in was Jay Gordon Melton's vampire book. So so this big vampire encyclopedia he did. And that and a couple of other things, like I went back to my high school and to my creative writing teacher, Ms. Fish, and I was so proud about like the stuff that I had published and the things that I did. And I was like, I, I brought to give to the library in my naivete, um, all of these copies. And she's she's like, you know, praising me for like what I'd done and the, the awards that I'd won and like all of this other, you know, at this point, outdated bullshit. But then she's like, I, I can't give it to the library. They'll just throw it out. And I'm like, but they've got civil leak on the shelves. Like that's where I found Brian Froud's fairy book. Like, like all of this, she's like, nope, not anymore. Like all of that is gone, like just gone. Um, there were there were teachers who were dr- driven out because they were just too open-minded. And the thing is, is like our school, like I said, rural Ohio, um, fairly small school, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but we had fantastic teachers. Everybody was really extraordinary every single year we put out at least two national merit scholars like every single year like it was we were just and it was because it was open-minded it was because we were encouraged to explore stuff and then all of like the yuppies moved in because they wanted their kids to have those kinds of high scores and all the yuppies were conservative and started to take the like well you can't teach my kid this and you can't let my kid teach you know study that and the school stats started to go down because a mind needs air to breathe and it needs room to explore and when you try to when you when you treat a child's mind like like a veal cow you're you're not going to get anything that is like long-term survivable it's you just turn them into mush it's bad yeah 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 Yeah, that's that's a that's a sad outcome that really is Mm. Yeah, the other guy who graduated with me was Daryl Morey, who is currently the manager for the Houston Rockets. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we were we were National Merit Scholar buddies. Cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. I miss Houston. I was, yeah, yeah. Oh, were, were, were you done in Houston? Yeah, that's, you know, I, I've moved a lot for work and I've gotten so used to not, um, you know, this is just my next stop and I know I'm going to be... Mm gone and Houston so I, I just got used to just moving um so I've, I've never like well I'd like to live in x city again um up until Houston I'd move mm. back there in a heartbeat oh I loved it down there such a great city such a great city but yeah, I, the you know, cities I like Houston and Austin I didn't live I I lived in Austin as well loved it it's so beautiful it reminded me more mm. of California than than what you would think Texas is, um, like like the stereotypical Texas. Very artsy. Uh, 
yeah, but but um, beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. Austin is so beautiful. I lived in the hills, so of course that mm. that helped. Um, but no, it would be Houston. I'd move back to, and I lived in the loop, um, not out in like the suburbs or whatnot. So I didn't have to deal with commute or, or anything mm. like that. So, um, you know, my, my life was pretty much contained in this, this area of Houston called the loop, um, where you can really, you know, really easily boot around like for the, the size of the city. It's not like, you know, the streets are, are jam packed and, mm. you know, um, Oh, it was great. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I would move back there in a in a heartbeat. Like I'm really trying to answer the first part of the question, which is when did I start practicing? And and I'm like, well, was it when I was like going out in the backyard and learning like all the plants and trying to make uh, like herbal remedies and things? And again, like had this book on poisons and herbal stuff in fourth grade. Like like where where is it? Like when when does it happen? Because it just sort of like all coalesces. Yeah. From from so many different directions. And and for me, the the path of psychic and the path of uh, like like magical practitioner and energy worker and vampire are all so they're the same. Like it's they're all intertwined. It's a big braid for me. It's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, Okay. so was there maybe a moment then where you were like, ah, you know, like when we were younger and, and we're kind of like dabbling and then there was that moment, you know, that, that aha moment. This is going to sound, I guess, weirdly stereotypical of me. Um, it was the first fan convention I went to. I went to a, tra- a Star Trek convention with uh, my buddy who he and I were the the two people who made up the Doctor Who fan club, because let me also say that I was a horrible geek and nerd. Like we, it was, it was me and Chuck Nelson and we were the Doctor Who fan club. Uh, and he was much better off than me and learned about this uh, Trek convention called Lagrange Con and managed to convince, I'm not sure how, cause my grandmother didn't like letting me leave the house. Uh, but I got to go there for uh, a Saturday afternoon and the whole thing was a little overwhelming. We went to a couple of things. We mostly kind of like went to the uh, dealer's room. Mm-hmm. And then there was a table that just had like all of these uh, free free magazines and uh, Kirk slash Spock fiction, which was a little bit of an eye opener for me because I was kind of sheltered. Uh, but on top of that, uh, there were a whole bunch of, of zines on the vampire community on witchcraft on like like there was just a whole they, they'd been put out there for free right and i grabbed everything that i could find because i did not realize that there were other people who practiced these things that, that like there were things that were in books and there was civil leak and that person was like over in england and maybe there were witches there but there weren't people my age yeah yeah who did this everybody i knew around my town um was you know some usually some flavor of catholic uh, certainly some flavor of Christian. And so, you know, uh, so, so realizing at, at 17 that there were other people, that it was something people could practice here and now, and that there was community mm-hmm. to be found. Uh, and, and from that point, uh, that's how I launched into publishing my own zine, um, Shadow Dance, uh, in October of 91. And that from from that point forward and going to college and kind of meeting people 
from different backgrounds and, and not from this, this very tiny insular little town in Ohio. Um, that was sort of the, this is a viable path. Right. Okay. And even then it ended up being complicated because I was like, okay, so there's this thing and this thing and this thing that I do. And I think I might be a psychic vampire and I'd meet the Wiccans and they'd be like, <laughs> like or I was at uh, one party and there was a person who was like, mm, uh, basically the proto otherkin people. So the one person was like, I'm an elf. And the lady next to like, I'm a fairy. And the person next to them is like, I'm a dragon. What are you, Michelle? And I'm like, I think I'm a vampire. And all three of them on cue, those don't exist. <gasps> oh my God. And I'm like, and I'm just like, I, I'm no, I'm just no. <laughs> like I'm- Oh, wow. But no, sorry, bye. That's funny. It That's was, it funny. was, yeah. You know, uh, I got run out of more groups than, than accepted yeah. for many, many years. People need to realize, like, uh, people that are younger than us, um, um, Michelle and I both being in our, our 30s. So, um, everyone in their, <laughs> totally in their, in their, um, 20s and, and what, like, just people young. The 90s were the dark ages. Um, mm. you know, the 94 for magical people, for LGBT people, the 90s were still honestly the dark ages. Um, things good things were happening um in the 90s, but they really were the dark ages. And as shocked as I was when you were like, when they said to you vampires aren't real, that's just shocking, not because they said that, but because the elf, the fairy, and the dragon. Right. Right. No, that, that, that was the thing that got me. I was like, I, I went in going, okay, so there's, there's people who practice witchcraft and there's Wiccans and there's pagans and there's this and there's that. So like, clearly we can have a conversation about different points of view. Yeah. Not always. No, no. And especially earlier, really not. And again, that, that whole satanic panic, they heard vampire and they're like, Oh, are you a satanic? And I'm like, I don't think so. But yeah. I mean, how would that be bad? Yeah. Is that bad? I guess that's bad. All right. I'm just going to stop talking to you now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The night I, re I remember like we were all, you know, us little good neo-pagans. Um, vampires were bad. Um, necromancers. Mm -hmm. and, but meanwhile, I mean, that's a very narrow definition of necromancy if you're gonna right right oh my that that yeah, made me that, that that was that was a sticking point and for me too like, like i was like but but you're talking to spirits yeah yeah that's Ooh. necromancy you know yeah. um yeah yeah the, the 90s weren't great it was just it was just complicated and it was people fumbling around trying to like each carve out their own little bit of thing but in my opinion living through it and observing it both you cannot define yourself in the negative space left to you by somebody else. Basically, you can't define yourself by what you are not to somebody else. Like you right. have to define yourself as what you are to you. Yeah. And so if you're stuck and hung up on what your dominant culture is telling you, you aren't allowed to be, and all of your conversation is a response to that, you're not being genuinely yourself. You're just right. having an argument. Yeah. Um, and, and that was so much of these early subcultures, especially then. And as things were transitioning to the internet, 
uh, and and like where different boundaries were getting like knocked down, but sort of redefined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it was we wouldn't be where we are right now without it. But wow, was it messy? Yeah, it was incredibly messy. Yeah, I think on reflection, um, people were trying to like carve out kingdoms, you know, mm-hmm. and with kingdoms come kingdom uh, mm-hmm. or queendom. And so very specific rules and, and who belonged and who didn't. <laughs> and I, I, I think again, on reflection, I think it was unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but nonetheless, it existed and um, it, 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 it made for some messy circumstances. It certainly well, the- enhanced the community. Um, yeah. Uh, as 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 much, you know, if if that, you know, that never took place, I think we would be a lot farther along community wise than than what we are. But um, it was interesting. Yeah. It was an interesting time. Yeah, I think probably the most long term detrimental thing, and it's the thing that I'm thrilled to see is just kind of being exploded was you could kind of be one thing mm-hmm. like if you wanted to explore your identity as somebody in the, the gay lgbtq community not that there was really room for t or i or a back then like you were gay or you were a lesbian and maybe you were bi mm-hmm. but if you were bi you kind of didn't vault long to either side and you got a lot of shit there but like there could be that and you could explore that yeah but yeah exploring that also with maybe one other thing was sort of okay but even then like you picked one identity that was like your alternate identity and there wasn't a lot of dialogue between different groups right and there wasn't a lot of permeability between the barriers that have been artificially set up so the vampire community didn't really deal with the witches or the other kin um, and like, if you brought too much uh, woo into the gay community, people were weirded out by that because they didn't want to be associated with yep. it. Uh, and just all of it was uh, the, the gaming community. If you brought too much real stuff in there, like that was bad. It was just, yeah, 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 yeah. so much of it was reacting to what the dominant culture was doing to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> it was a, com- a complete reaction to dominant culture and modeling ourselves after dominant culture because that's all you know um I just had a a point I was gonna make about the 90s again and I just lost my train of thought oh you know especially like um not being able to bring in a lot of woo into the LGBT community in the 90s back then the whole narrative was we're just like straight people. The only difference is what we do in bed, which mm-hmm. obviously so is completely not true, but we were also trying not to get killed. So yeah, no, you know, to, to have to, you know, play that narrative. It's, it's what we, uh, Oh no, we're all the same. We're all the same. at the mm-hmm. end of the day. No, we're not. No, we're not, you know, but we had to play the game because the, the alternative was deadly. You know. Yeah, yeah, literally. Like, and I don't know that people can quite, you know, redact backward and go like seriously, truly. You could be. I mean, 
the way police harass, harass people of color now, and that has never changed, yeah. but there was definitely points where if they couldn't find a black person to be terrible to, they would find the person who looked different in another way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And while we were generally not in danger of being literally shot, uh, we certainly were in danger of being beat up. We were in danger of being charged with things we didn't commit. We were in danger of being like just run in for no good reason beyond we looked weird. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm friends with Damian Eccles, who spent 20 freaking years on death row, basically because he was the weird kid, kid in town. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it, uh, it happened. Um, yeah, it was the 90s were, were quite a time. I, I don't regret experiencing them like I, I I'm never like oh I wish I, I wasn't born until 2000 or something like that because mm. I think I think it gave me it didn't give me necessarily strength at the time mm. uh, because you know I was a teenager in in the 90s you don't have that 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 agency you know uh when you're when you're a teenager some well some but you know I, I lived in a typical you know, family home mm-hmm. where you're a teenager and you act like a teenager. Um, but it, 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 as an adult, I certainly draw on the strength that you had to uh, create for yourself living in, in that kind of environment. So I certainly don't regret the experience. It's just, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, it wasn't all terrible. The, the club yeah. scene was fantastic. It was amazing. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, like, like the only thing I could think of reading about in history is the German cabaret scene, mm-hmm. like like leading up to everything that happened in Germany that led to World War II. Yeah. But there, like, like what gets erased is there was this, this profusion, this blossoming of alternative culture, of very, very liberal... Uh, like like thoughts and music there was a lot of uh, magic and metaphysics there was a lot of exploration and redefining not just gay bi but like everything in between uh and and like like what was going on there is part of the things that just got completely crushed right yeah and like the the club scene in the 90s was you know us banging against everything we were being told we couldn't be yeah we couldn't do yeah. And that's why it was so great. And that's why, you know, you don't have that same sort of club scene today or even 10 years yeah. ago, because you need that level of adversity to, to have that kind of experience. And, you know, you're, I think you're right on the money when you're referencing the, um, the German cabaret scene of the Weimar, uh, Weimar Republic, yeah. um, post-World War one pre-world war ii that was an amazing time in in germ oh, it's hard times of course because yeah. you know, they, they were broke and whatnot but out of that adversity came that incredible culture and if you were lgbt in that time period that really was the best place in the world to be lgbt mm-hmm. and thousands and thousands and thousands of professional astrologers and palmists and tarot readers and magicians like it was just this this whole incredible world 
as brief as it was because yeah we're yeah, working because yeah yeah so i think the 90s were very much uh very much like that you know yeah. so i i i'm glad i was able to experience it well and like to give the any any younger folks listening like it's unthinkable now that your parents might kick you out because you're playing D and D. Yeah. But I know people that that happened to. Yeah. I mean, kicked out for being gay, kicked out for being like too, too something, too femme, too masculine, too whatever, kicked out for wearing black, kicked out for listening to the wrong music. Uh, but D and D like role-playing games, all of that was bad. All yeah. of it was bad. And now we're at a completely different turn. And yet also this, the, the looming specter of a sort of second satanic panic, like for those of us who lived through it, we're like, uh-oh, yeah. it's kind of looking that way again. See now- Let's not get there. Yeah, now I was really too young to really experience the satanic panic. So looking back on it, um, it seemed to affect more people like that weren't part of any uh, gaming, magical, mm. vampire, goth community. Like, you know, when I think of Satanic Panic, I think of all the um, daycare workers that mm. were, you know, arrested and, and thrown in prison. And these are all upstanding members of their communities. They're all Christian and da-da-da-da-da. It seems to me that the the... The, the innocent people that had nothing to do with anything that the satanic panic was in response to they were the one just like the the witch hunts of um early modern europe it wasn't witches and pagans being uh executed it was christians mm -hmm. so to me it seemed that the satanic panic affected I'm just going to say normal people um, mm. more so than our communities. More so directly, but indirectly in like skewing public opinion against anything that could be construed as dark when, mm. when uh, a good portion of like mainstream Christian culture honestly believes that there is a nationwide conspiracy of satanic cults doing ritualized child abuse and murder in the woods yeah anything that could get like listed as like this this is a gateway to satanism and this is a gateway to, like everything then becomes suspect yeah which is why they tried to like wipe out D and D. and if your kid was listening to the wrong heavy metal music Ozzy Osbourne is trying to like turn your kids to Satan play yeah. the records backwards and it's gonna like give you instructions on how to meet the great black goat of the woods and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right and, and the thing was is like people literally backwards. believed yeah. that yeah. Like, yeah literally believed it yeah but, but um, look what's going on right now in in yeah. your political discourse so I mean yeah. we think it sounds ridiculous and impossible meanwhile and it's not Meanwhile, it's it's basically happening again. So it's yeah. you know it's it's not it's not a re in a realm of fantasy. It's not from some dark age. It's it's happening now. You know. Yeah, and I don't know. Well, I mean, I've got some 
I've got some like college level theories for why uh, Christians, especially evangelicals, seem to be especially uh, susceptible to it, and and are the ones that like it trickles down from. Yeah, uh, but that we're right back there, and it's it's a little scary. I'm hoping I'm hoping we take a different fork in the road this time collectively. Well, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Good. All else fails, cast some magic. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so I think we we covered your teenage high school years. So college, that that seminal time when we all are supposed to become responsible adults that show up to class on time and don't drink. Yeah, see, I was straight-laced and straight as an arrow and actually turned out to be allergic to alcohol. Right. Uh, so college was very, um, I was, okay, so I was a full-ride scholarship, um, National Merit Scholar, Honor Society, uh, and was determined with my full-ride to, like, get as much schooling in those four years as possible. My ultimate goal was to become a college professor. I started off in um, English, uh, English literature, Brit Lit, and creative writing. Uh, hit a point where I was like, well, I kind of already know how to do most of this and have studied a lot of this. So I ended up over in the psych department, realized that I could not hack statistics at all. Um, didn't, had, had been raised where like you didn't ask for help. So like the idea of a tutor was like just not even something that occurred to me okay. so once i like hit my head against statistics to a point of like i think there's something broken in my head which they didn't have dyscalculia as something that they understood at the time i have dyscalculia as it turns out so like the fact that i could be like i understand this in theory i can't put it on the paper i don't know what's going wrong but long story short it meant no major in psychology for me that bumped down to a minor and i switched over into the religious studies department um all said and told, it was like, you know, I, I forget, like, what, Britlet majors, religious studies department major, psych stuff in there and a creative writing thing, all kind of, I, I took a lot of classes. Right. Like, I was focused. Um, but at the same time, none of that was taking up enough of my time or my energy. Like, I was bored. Right. I was carrying like the full course load that they would allow me to. And I was bored out of my skull. So it, I started a, an underground magazine and I started writing the codex and I started experimenting pretty extensively and running um, like, like study groups where it wasn't so much that like I'm teaching people things, but I was like doing, um, I based it sort of like off of the salon style of learning yeah. where we would get together and we would all like hang out like little decadent dilettantes and talk about stuff and, you know, do poetry and like energy work and sometimes like decadent back rubs things. Um, there's actually an underground novel that talks about some of the shenanigans we got up to on Coventry Road outside of the, the uh, Arabica coffee house, because it was not uncommon in the summers to see the whole bunch of us like all dressed in our, our goth finery draped across one another um on these like uh, like sort of like stair things uh just 
like playing with one another's hair and playing with one another's faces and talking philosophy and talking religion and doing energy work and playing magic and basically like just all of this all of this stuff um right. and god that's where i met you know the, the first practicing witches that i met and people who claimed to be pagan priestesses some of whom actually were uh it's also where i was probably first inspired to um and I've, I've carried this with me since i met these two girls uh they were they were about my age so what 18 or 19 they were lesbians they were living in somebody's house and he was teaching them energy work and it came out in this conversation as like oh he's teaching you energy work and i started talking about the stuff that i do and they're i rapidly like i'm over their head and they're like oh well he hasn't allowed us to learn that yet we need to do more sex magic with him before we have leveled up in power oh, uh... Uh, almost word for word and i'm like whoa 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 okay so how old is this guy 40 something mm. okay and you have to suck his magical quim stick in order to do energy work <laughs> Uh, why <laughs> uh, like are you okay with this like is this actually something that you're into or oh well no but this is what we're have we, we have to do for the for, for learning i'm like no you don't like like really no you don't um and so that also started sort of this uh little personal crusade to take down all the people who were spewing shit mm -hmm. um and like like really being very vigilant about that like i did not always make a lot of friends as a result <laughs> but i it was hard enough to get like accurate information that people weren't trying to sell to you and then to have somebody do stuff like that so so there were a couple of things that came together for me at that time like um creating spaces for people encouraging dialogue among very disparate uh belief systems and also taking down any bastard that pulled crap like that mm -hmm. um and you know i'm i'm about i was not i was not as tall as i am in, in college like i had a growth spurt found it i was intersex later which second puberty made sense afterwards um but you know so i'm like you know five eight 120 pounds soaking wet and still feisty as hell so i i mean i would just throw down with people um over stuff like that uh and at the same time had some fantastic college professors, one of whom I'm certain was a Buddhist monk and he just didn't want to admit it to the Jesuits because I went to a Jesuit Catholic college. Okay. Um, had a couple of interesting conversations with uh, the regional exorcist, got to take demonology, um, like from the freaking Jesuits uh, and like really started to put together my spiritual views and, and what that meant and how that, was adjacent to witchcraft but wasn't really the same thing did not seem to fall certainly didn't fall in with how witchcraft was being presented to me by right. most of the covens act at the time which was very mother goddess very gender essentialist right um very focused on life and fertility and sex and things that i was just like yeah but i don't I mean, that seems great for you. That does not work for me. Right. Yeah. Which led to kind of getting on the ground floor of, of shaping the vampire community, which was everything that that wasn't. Right. Spirits, death, 
Um, instead of like light and life, it's darkness, it's shadow. Uh, and uh, really ultimately practicing the same types of magic, like, like, like profound stuff. There's a lot of power there. It was just, I think our culture split us off. And it's, it's really neat to see us now where like those two streams have come back together and you almost don't need different terms to, yeah. to differentiate them. Um, so yeah, college was me wrestling with my identity as a magical worker, uh, especially as a vampire somebody who, who needed and, and relied on the life energy of other people uh, to kind of keep myself going, to fuel a lot of my abilities, <clears throat> learning how to manage that and like, like what did that mean and how did that play into my identity as an energy worker and as a psychic? Um, and also really wrestling with the, do I commit to these beliefs? Because there's a whole other path that I could take as a national merit scholar, as a you know honor society kid as, as someone who literally could just rock it right to college professor get tenure and have a boring but very comfortable life hmm. that would pretty much require me to go yeah but i can't dabble in these things because who gets tenure if they say they're a vampire like you have yeah. to fit yourself into a box yeah and and realizing that the box was not for me yeah good old academia yeah the box was just not for me. Um, what finally tore it for me with academia, because I could kind of, I, I was still trying to try, try to make it work, was just realizing that I, I love knowledge. Um, I won't say that like, it, it, it's as close to my religion as things get. I mean, like it's a significant part of my, my spirituality to, to find knowledge, to encourage other people to discover, to share it, to facilitate its sharing. And that meant that I held academia on this enormous pedestal that, as it turned out, it didn't deserve. Right. And what tore it for me was finding that so much of academia was not about sharing knowledge. In, in some cases, it was about politicizing it. It was either or it was about hoarding it or it was learning to talk about it in such a way that it like Gate, what was a gatekeeping exercise yeah. so that certain people had access to this if they were worthy and they knew what Weltanschauung meant when you wrote it out on the page. And I, I didn't like that. Like, mm -hmm. if you're going to have information, you should do everything in your power to communicate it as clearly as possible to the people who also want it, who are willing to share it. And, and that's, that's why I merrily found a different, a different path. Yeah. It yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> um, she is, she's letting me know they've been talking for an hour and, and what on earth am I doing in here talking to someone who is not her for this long oh poor kitty my dogs have been good they haven't barked yet so that's uh that's uh always a plus so I read um, the Vampire Codex and I found your your history of, of the vampire community so fascinating. It was so fascinating. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, God. Like, let's see. So I wouldn't have found the vampire community if I had not started Shadow Dance, which was my gothic literary magazine, um, which turns 30 this year. <laughs> <laughs> which which is a thought like like i've been doing some of these things like 
just 30 what the hell yeah um so that was on the surface all about like fiction and poetry and stuff and uh, especially because of the time it was also the cover for ex like, like experimenting and reaching out and communicating more really like like okay so here's the figure of the vampire archetype and we're telling like great horror stories and horror erotica about it but like what is it really to you uh, so this this pen pal network grew out of that and uh there were other groups that were starting to form at the time and this is all before the internet so it's all snail mail yeah um, newsletters and fanzines and like actual pen pal networks uh and i'm trying to think of who all I first contacted with through that stuff. There, there were a couple of people who turned out to be like major players later. Um, Chad Savage, who isn't directly involved in the vampire community, but did a whole bunch of art with things like with, with White Wolf and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and the role play community kind of was woven through all this as well, because similarly to Shadowdance providing kind of a cover uh, to talk about the real stuff through art and literature, role play let people have a place where they could meet in person and socialize and a conversation you could talk you kind of like spot like who's actually into the occult who's actually into witchcraft who's actually into this and then at the denny's later or the ihop you could be like so here's this other thing that i'm into into how about you and from that a community grew uh I was, I was a little too uh, young and innocent at that time um, to, 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 to be part of the kink community where the same thing was happening. Right. Where uh, it was okay to talk about like blood, blood play, um, the power exchange or energy exchange and dominance and submission. Uh, and so there was a whole other part of the community that was there like um, uh, Mistress Vial, uh, Viola Johnson, who wrote Dumpier, Child of the Blood. And that's very much the perspective she was coming from. And all of it was also intertwined with the Gothic club scene. Because again, here's a place where we could congregate. The vampire was uh, a, a sexy figure and a mysterious figure, something that was part of the art and the music and the poetry. Um, uh, this, this sort of like mysterious androgyne being of the shadows that was held up uh, and uh, we could, again, outside of the art and the music, go, hey, what does this also mean to you? There was, in Ohio particularly, it, it was more like probably witches' covens, where there were like little knots of people who were practicing, uh, learning from one another, doing different things. Mm. And on the coasts, there were thriving club scenes woven through those were much more uh, organized groups. Uh, the most striking of those was in New York City, it turned into this elaborate court system where you, you, you had houses and you had courts and everything revolved around uh, you know, going to these big clubs and it was all VIP sort of stuff. Uh, it got to a point where folks who were wearing the, the fancy vampire onks in mm. New York City were such a ubiquitous sight as vampires that one late night riding the F train uh, with a couple of folks from one of the, the vampire clubs, there, there was just like some, some gangbangers 
who like looked over and they were like, oh, yep, there's the vampires. Like just, they, they, they knew exactly who we were. Years later, I ran into people working for Paranormal State who were from New York City and they were like, hey, and they remembered some of the places. They remembered what, like it, it's, it was a whole thing. Yeah. Um, just, God. And it's, it was always, and it remains somewhat complicated because you have the people who practiced vampirism as kind of a magical path. And you had the people for whom it was part of their spirituality. And you had people for whom it was more of a kink and people for whom it was more of just a lifestyle where this was an archetype they related to. And uh, like the cowboy to somebody who's super into country Western, it's this right. sort of ideal right. that informs their art and their music and even their style. And all of these things kind of converged under the umbrella of that. Uh, so kind of like like um, how some people will describe some um, uh, content creators as like aesthetic witchcraft, like not not hmm. so much like practicing, but just more of the 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 aesthetic, the style. Yeah. And it, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the 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 vampire aesthetic was was a significant part yeah. of it. Um, called lifestylers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of different terms for them, but they were the ones that made up like the, the really flashy surface of it. Right. Uh, and, you know, they were also quite honestly, like the, the, the most financially sustaining to the clubs, especially on the coasts. Right. Uh, people who liked, who liked it as kind of like as dress up and, and maybe they dabbled here and there. And some of them definitely found their way into something as a, a, a spiritual practice or a magical practice. Mm -hmm. Um, and some were like, we have the same argument that you will find in the witchcraft community of like, are you born a witch? Are you initiated as a witch? Right. Uh, must you be initiated by another witch to be a witch? Can you self-initiate? Like, how do you, can anybody be a witch? Same thing in the vampire community. Are you born? Um, you know, what, what defines this quality if you are vampiric? Uh, do you have to be like initiated by somebody else? Mostly we are like, mm, nope, doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, but it helps to have somebody who knows what they're doing, teach you what's going on, kind of like walk you through that. Uh, especially again in New York, that became the, this, this very elaborate system of sires and childer, um, a lot of stratified social stuff. Uh, there were elements of the, the BDSM kink scene that kind of got pulled into that with dominant and submissive. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange tangle, wow. um, worthy of a lot of uh, anthropological study, honestly, at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it, you know, it's so far removed in time um, that, number one, it makes us sound old, but it's so far removed <laughs> in time that it would... Um, to, to, to have that sort of study and go back and, and look at it. And I think that would be fascinating. I think that would be absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, what I did with and, and for the vampire community was the idea of a psychic vampire, an energy vampire was not widely accepted, especially in the nineties and the early two thousands. And that was what I was like, I, mm -hmm. Um, I hit the word psychic vampire in the unfortunate psychic self-defense. I could tell you exactly like where I was in the shitty apartment in college in my freshman year when I was like, holy crap, this is me, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not predatory like this person. This is, this is rude. Yeah. Um, and so in 97, when I 
made contact with like the, the much larger, like the online vampire community and how that wove together all these geographically disparate groups. Um, I started putting out like little websites and AOL page, uh, seeding, I'd already been, oh God, let's see, 94, 95, 96, I had a group called the International Society of Vampires and that was all print. Mm -hmm. um, and that was where I was distributing parts of the codex and we moved into stuff online. So 97, 98, I started to put some of it online and it was a hard sell. <clears throat> I got a lot of pushback because people were like, vampires drink blood, period, the end. Yeah. Um, which now is unthinkable. Like, like I, I tell it to like the new kids who are like, like people who grew up in the vampire community. They're like, but there's psychic vampires and there's hybrids and there's chronic vampires. I'm like, that came from me. Uh, and like, oh, and this is a vegan. Yeah, that came from me too. Vampire <laughs> awakening. That came from me. I stole it from the Buddhists. I can show you where. <laughs> and I feel a little bit like get off my lawn, but with vampire fangs. Um, <laughs> but there, there were a lot of ideas that, that got disseminated and evolved and changed as we all kind of bringing in so many different aspects. The, the other big contribution that I did was there was something called the Black Veil. Uh, and in 1998, it was, and God, I wish I had a screen cap of it because nobody believes me anymore. Um, 1998, it was a slight reworking of the traditions of the masquerade from the role-playing game. Mm -hmm. Because one of those big vampire communities in New York had pretty much grown out of a vampire LARP. Right. Uh, it is, it, it's advertised as a vampire LARP in, uh, in the 1998 Realms of Fantasy magazine. Like it is explicitly called a vampire LARP. There, the Endless Night is a four day vampire LARP in New Orleans. Like there's no pretending it's not. And that's fine because at the time, like everything was all woven together. Uh, but things had happened in 1996. Um, there was a young man from Murraysville, Kentucky, who drove down to Florida and bludgeoned a girl's parents to death with a tire iron, and they were part of a vampire group. Mm. Um, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about it. Uh, you can see me on a couple of, there was recently a cults episode that was filmed about it, and we talked about how he, he was not necessarily part of the community, but was part of this, this cultural milieu that was happening and, and was using it in a, a very bad way. Yeah. Um, and there was also a reporter who went missing, Susan Walsh. She had previously done an expose on the Russian mob in New York City. Uh, for some reason, nobody connects that to her disappearance because her next expose was on the vampire community and that was much more interesting. Um, she went missing when she was going to meet up with an informant. Uh, she left her child in the car. So she was just planning to like, you know, make a quick contact and then go back. Wow. And she just disappeared. Um, this, the connection to the vampire community has not been helped by the fact that there are definitely elements in the vampire community that like to feel very ooky spooky and kind of maintain the mystique. Yeah. Uh, and so they will be like, oh, well, you know, there is really a mystery there, but I can't tell you because it's secret. And I got to tell you, it wasn't the vampires. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, look at the much likelier suspect with that. Yeah. Um, but that meant that in 96, uh, 
that whole satanic panic thing like got dangerous. Um, to be a vampire was to be immediately suspect as a potential murderer, as someone who was probably dragging people into your basement and sacrificing them to Lord knows what and drinking their blood. Um, there were you know, books written about it. There were people who were going and educating police around the country of how to recognize, you know, what does this onk mean? That person's going to kill a kid. Like, like just, just straight, straight up horrible stuff. Yeah. Um, and it made it very dangerous. Um, yeah. Much more dangerous than being just, you know, a witch where it's like, oh, hey, they like to dance naked in the woods. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, might be unprotected sex, but they're not going to like, you know, stab you and drink your blood. Uh, there were a couple of shows that happened. Um, the Ricky Lake show is the one that was the flashpoint for me. I'd been involved as a consultant on a book called Something in the Blood. Uh, I was not out of the coffin at the time. So I was in there as um, the editor and publisher of the stuff connected to the International Society of Vampires and to Shadow Dance. And I had done a kind of census on the vampire community at the time. So I had a whole bunch of neat statistics. Oh, statistics haunts me. <laughs> statistics. I just got to put it out. Love statistics. Uh, great. I, somebody has to. Um, <laughs> so I'd been involved in that book. I wasn't out as a vampire at the time. The Ricky Lake show contacts me and they're looking for real vampires for their show. And this is where I, this, this was the moment actually where I made a decision for a whole lot of things in my life. Um, the person on the phone from New York, you know, it's like, well, are you a vampire? Would you like to do this? I'm like, I'm not a vampire. I'm an expert. I've done this. Okay. Well, what we're looking for is someone who's willing to say that they're a vampire. And this comes with an all expenses paid trip to New York and we'll be putting you up in the blah, blah, blah hotel. So would you like to reconsider? No, I'm, I'm not a vampire. Do you have a friend who would like to say that they are a vampire for an all expenses? I mean, they, they were they hung up on. Yeah. Um, and then I saw what, what made it to that Ricky Lake interview. And I realized that I needed to make a decision about what I was gonna do with myself um, and my life, especially because at that point, um, books, uh, newspaper articles, like you, you couldn't have a scene name. I mean, everybody had a scene name, but if you were going to go on record, they wanted your first name and your yeah. last name. Yeah. Um, and that was a level of exposure that not everybody could do. People were having their kids taken away from them. Um, people were investigated by the FBI. I mean, like literally had their computers like walked out of their house because they're talking to other people in the vampire community. And one of those people might've been that kid from Murraysville, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, so 1996, I made the decision to just be out about it and to be a media liaison and to be a voice of reason and the next 10 years was anytime a kid in black shot up a school or did something terrible, uh, I ended up on some television show or radio show or something as the, this is what this community does and, and kind of tangentially talking about the goth community. Hmm. And like, here's where this person is an outlier and here's where we don't do that, which leads back to the black veil. Because when I saw that this code of ethics that was being sort of touted as like the, the great, you know, vampire Wiccan read, um, and it was just plagiarized. I mean, just, and, and not just like 
plagiarized from somebody's nonfiction book, like plagiarized from a role-playing game. I was just like, okay, dude, you don't even have to put my name on it. Let me rewrite it. Mm. Just please let me rewrite it. Um, at the time, he wanted my name on it. Uh, that's changed since, but you know, of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I rewrote the the Black Veil um, and turned it into. Uh, at first, it was thirteen rules, and we cut it back down to seven. Um, but for the longest time, and I think still, uh, it is the most widely recognized code of ethics used within the vampire community. Right popular enough that it is quoted and used as the reason why the little vampires didn't commit the murder on the suckers episode of CSI. <laughs> <laughs> quoted, quoted on, on CSI. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Cheers. So I, that whole, you know, <laughs> that whole world time period just, I can listen to you talk about that for hours because I, I just find it fascinating. Um, but one thing, like, I, I know about you college vampire community and then nothing up until yeah. paranormal state. So you you made this, like, I'm, I'm the, not yeah. in an eagle way. I'm the vampire spokesman. I'm not going to be in academia so what was your life like what was going on from college to paranormal state because that's that's a gap that i don't know about writing books mostly writing books which is what i'd been trying to do and managing house keperu and kind of like shepherding house keperu through the ugly growing pains of like an early group Mm. um where magical groups and yeah, I've, I've had, I have fortunately, I've been fortunate enough to sit in the green room with people like Selena Fox or, uh, good Lord, um, <clears throat> Oberon, Ravenheart, Zell, uh, Ian Bonowitz, or, oh, I just screwed up his name. Uh, I- yeah, Bonowitz, Bonowitz. Um, anyway, a bunch of people who are significant folks, who founded things, who ran things, I've had the benefit of learning that it wasn't just us. That when you put a group together, it doesn't matter how high your ideals or how hard you work, people are complicated. And group dynamics are really complicated. And if you can get a group through its first year and then its first three years, and manage the inevitable entanglements of group dynamics where some of your members hook up and some of your members break up. And sometimes you have somebody who's not so good. And what do you do about that? Mm -hmm. Um, If you can survive that as a group, you will probably survive as a group for much, much longer than those first few years. Between while still tail end of being spokesperson for the vampire community, prior to doing all the stuff with Paranormal State, I'm going through that also learning that I am in fact intersex. My mom's dying of cancer. My grandfather dies. I lose the love of my life and life is very complicated for a while. (laughs) Um, How that turned into paranormal investigation was, so I'm writing, you know, I got the codex out. Um, 
there had been a version of it. So, so the very first version of the Vampire Codex was written in 94. Um, and there were various like small press releases between that and everything. But I really wanted it to be like my first big publication with a third party publisher. Like there were plenty of other books I could have written, but like it felt like this needed to be out in the world. Um, and so I, I worked for several years to get a version that a publisher would take because at the time, a book about real vampires for real vampires was a very hard sell. Um, Wiser took it. Uh, I know in retrospect that it was an incredibly predatory contract and that's just is what it is, but it's out. Yeah. Um, You know, wrote that, they signed me to to two more books. So that one, the Psychic Energy Codex and Psychic Dreamwalking book. Um, It was not my choice to put Psychic in front of every one of my books. Um, They thought Psychic Vampire Codex was what was going to like pull in the other people into Psychic stuff. Uh, I I had different plans. They had different plans. They won the end. Yeah. Um, So I'm writing stuff and I'm incidentally, incidentally, my tablet here that I'm on Mm. is sitting on the psychic energy codex and the psychic vampire codex, like right now. (laughs) Well, the psychic energy codex was my, my response to the number of energy workers who read the vampire codex and were like, we like a lot of the techniques in here, but we're really, we're not vampires. So Mm. the vampire stuff is like, not our thing. Right. Could you write something that, you know, just, energy work and I also had enough friends who like their parents were like well what are you into so I wanted to write a book that like you could hand to your mom or your grandpa or whoever and they could be like oh energy work cool this is something I can get into you're still weird but not a killer yeah 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 exactly um so and I was also recording oh lord I was still I was still touring with Earn um so I also do music Right. Uh, and recording with Knox Arcana, working with Monolith Graphics. So in, in that time, like there's there's a, a lot of different things that are going on. Yeah. Which are important because uh, the music and the books are what got the attention of Elfie Music um, mm. and Josh Light, who were working with the Paranormal Research Society at Penn State before there was a television show. They used to run a convention called UNIFCON. And, uh, you know, I think I can actually say this. I, uh, fuck it, YOLO. Um, It was the opinion of Elfie and Josh that somebody that they worked with was a psychic vampire and didn't quite understand that he was vampiric. Mm -hmm. And they really wanted someone who was an expert on that topic to come out and converge on like paranormal energy work and also vampirism, sort of in the hope that the person they worked with in PRS would recognize what was going on with him. Right. Um, And so they encouraged that person, Ryan Buell, Mm -hmm. to reach out and have me come out and speak at UNIFCON. And unbeknownst to me, they were being scouted at that very UNIFCON uh, to end up having this television show that UNIFCON, let's see, the Jason Hawes and, Jay, and, and Grant were, um, God, let me see, the list was, it was an all-star cast. Like it was, it was insane to be among these people. Lorraine Warren was there. She was there with her favorite Catholic exorcist mm. who died the next year. Um, Hans Holzer was there. I got to meet and hang out with him. That's holy, cool. That's holy cool. cow. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the ghost hunters guys from sci-fi, uh, Chris Fleming, Lloyd Auerbach, who I adore and is just like the funniest person to ever be sitting in the back of the room with and kind of like trading back and forth some of our opinions of Wait, Tap, Taps predated Paranormal State? They did. They did. And, and the reason we have Paranormal State is UNIFCON was one of the only paranormal conventions so taps was out there and so tv people were like oh what's going on oh there's there's a college based paranormal group oh and and so they developed it into a show um paranormal state came out uh shortly before supernatural and it's really interesting like watching supernatural and seeing like some very similar like looks and themes and like just trying to figure out like what, what was going on with that yeah, I don't remember Taps. See, I thought, like, I have a soft spot uh, mm-hmm. uh, for Paranormal State because I remember it as being my first um, uh, paranormal investigation show, but it may have been Taps. Well, technically it was Dana's. She had mm-hmm. her, uh, uh, God, I can't remember what it was called, Ghosty Girls or something like that. Yeah, ghost, ghost Girls, something ghost like girls, that. Something like that. Um, here in Canada, she she's from Ontario, um, my province, but she's Southern Ontario, and I'm up in the middle of nowhere up here in Northern Ontario. Um, so they, they had like one season on Space Channel. Okay. But besides that, I no, I thought, I thought, um, I thought, uh, <laughs> Paranormal State came first before Taps. No, J- Jason, I, I still have a soft spot for it anyways. Trying to, I, I don't know what year they launched, but I can say that they already had Taps magazine. Uh, I'm going to guess that they had at least two seasons under their belt because they had a pretty solid fan base when we went there. Um, actually, Dave Schrader was the master of ceremonies for one of the panels that we all got on. I think he's um, the master of ceremonies of everything. If it's paranormal, he's just running it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And 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 like he was, he was, as far as I knew, pretty much new at that point. Um, met Chip Coffee there. Mm-hmm. Like it was just sort of this this big stew of things. And here I am, you know, six feet tall and clad in black. And people are like, Are you a psychic? And I'm like, I'm a vampire and I teach energy work. Uh, and they're like, You're a what? <laughs> I'm like, well, I do psychic. Yeah, I do psychic stuff too, but it's um, come to the class. It's really a long story, and I'm not good at being brief. <laughs> uh, so, gravity is overrated. I'm sorry, completely uh, overrated. It's it's you know there there are points where it's good, and and there's times where just some things are just too complicated, and you just kind of have to like go through the whole outline. Um, so I got involved in Paranormal State the first season as a consultant. Uh, not as a psychic. Uh, so, so a thing about production companies and people in TV is, I don't know that they know how to Google, first of all. Um, and th- they are real good at just boxes. So they'll be like, oh, you wrote a book. And they don't probably read the book. Um, they don't really ask if you wrote five other books. And they're, th- they'll understand like you did something on one topic. So they're just so like, you know, tunnel vision on that. Yeah. So, for the first season with Paranormal State, I was, I was Giles. I mean, or Bobby from Supernatural. Like literally, like they would just call me at three in the morning. They're out in the wilds of Maine. I can hear Lorraine Warren like 
you know, not cussing because she doesn't cuss, but she's like, oh, honey, I shouldn't have worn this linen skirt. <laughs> like, like, like that in the background. Um, and they're just like, hey, you know, we think that there's like, you know, some animals have died. There's some stuff going on. We think there might be a Native American connection. Like, do you have any resources on that? And I'm like, okay, uh, this tribe or that tribe, can you find somebody? Like, what the fuck? <clears throat> and the other thing they had me doing in addition to consulting on occult stuff was they had a tie-in blog called the Paranormal Insider, which I wrote. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was another one of the writers. And so um, like weekly articles would come out on like all kinds of strange stuff. I, I negotiated the rights to be able to keep everything I wrote. And most of that has come out in a, a book called Wide World of Weird. So like all of that. the, yeah. yeah, all the fun, quirky little like blog posts and articles that I wrote as a tie-in to Paranormal State. Yeah. And how I ended up on, on camera was uh, there was an episode that I think was called Black and White. And they had, somebody had a, honestly, it was a cheesy little voodoo doll that was just a tourist voodoo doll. And they'd had a voodoo expert. And even the people on TV could tell that their voodoo expert was not. Um, and so they were just like, we, we can't have this on camera. Like, we, ju we just can't. So I get a call and they're like, how much do you know about voodoo? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I can talk a little bit about it. Like, what do you need? I'm like, okay, as long as you do not say that I am a voodoo expert, because I... I have studied this, I can cite these books, I can give you a general idea of things, but I am not a practitioner. Can't you find a practitioner? No, we can't. Okay, well, I guess it's me. So I'm, I'm on like a phone interview, just sort of like talking about some of the, the magical and ritual potentials for this little voodoo doll. And I'm like, flip it over, does it say made in China? I don't think it made it, that made it to the, to the episode. Uh, <laughs> But how I got to be the psychic on Paranormal State is because we took a wrong turn on a logging road in Oregon. Uh, Elfie Music lost her brother and her father in rapid succession while all of this was going on. These were mostly bookish, introverted college students who suddenly had a 3.5 million viewing audience and were rocketed to like fame kind of overnight and they were not prepared for it. There was nothing that the production company did to help them prepare for it. And they were just like, everybody dealt with it differently. Yeah. And on top of that, Elfie is dealing with incredible personal tragedy and also trying to navigate the fact that she, she was raised in, her dad was a very, very well-respected, um, brilliant uh, thelemite. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wait, no. No, you I? don't. You, no, you probably didn't know that because on the show, they present her as Wiccan. Mm, yeah. And she is absolutely not. She was raised a Thelemite. She is a, a highly trained ceremonial magician. Yeah. Incredible pedigree for stuff like that, which they just like glossed right over because yeah. all they figured... My, my, my personal theory with Paranormal Estate is somewhere back in like the production company, they were like, wouldn't it be great if the Buffy Scooby gang were actually like paranormal investigators? And yeah. I, honest to God, like they just cast, somebody cast Elfie as Willow in their head and Josh Light as Xander and uh, Ryan as Angel 
And I guess that made Sergi Buffy. I was Giles with yeah. Spike's fashion sense, like 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 this whole thing. And you can you can kind of like go down the whole line of like where Katrina fits and where Taddy fits. Like you just it's 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 a fun mental exercise. Yeah. And um I mean, they're doing it for the money. Like, like you yeah. know, you can't be too hard on them because they they, they need to do what's going to work on on you know what's going to make it popular and and have people tune in. I mean, that that's what they do. You can't be too yeah. Hard well, it's but for us in the community, like <clears throat> I would have much preferred Elfie the ceremonial magician, mm-hmm. Elfie the ceremonial magician uh, magician on the show. Um, yeah. you know as opposed to Elfie the Wiccan that yeah the LBRP in the middle of a pond right right like you didn't really get they they didn't trust the audience enough to like really understand Elfie was was this Josh Light was uh pagan um so anyway because Elfie was uh really going through some stuff they felt that she was kind of pulling into a shell and they needed her. They really wanted her to be a little bit more assertive on camera. And somebody had the idea of bringing in a mentor, someone that she looked up to. And for that episode, which was called The Messenger, initially the idea was to bring me in as Alfie's mentor. And we were going to be like little occult researchers together. And I would bring Alfie out of her shell because she was comfortable around me. And we took a wrong turn and it was in a van with me, Chip Coffee, and one person of the crew uh, every possible thing that could go wrong on this drive did. Uh, it was harrowing. We almost went off this mountain a couple of times. Oh, we had a flat right. tire. The person driving us didn't let us know that he was di- insulin-dependent diabetic and hadn't expected to take a 52-mile wrong turn. And by the end of it, Chip was like, you're psychic. And I'm like, well, yeah, I write books about psychic development. I thought it was obvious. And as a result, we ended up doing this. Chip went through and did a reading. They kept me separate. I went through and did my reading and then we got to compare what we were doing. And it was really neat to see where things overlapped. Right. From there on after I became the psychic and shortly thereafter, they instituted the blindfold as an experiment and I have loved it ever since. Yeah. Cause you still use it in portals to hell. Yeah. And, which I, to, to great effect. Okay, I am I am being told that I should probably tap out because there's something else going on. In, oh no no no, it's okay. Like I want to I, I I will talk with you forever about this. Mm-hmm. Um, what about a round two at some point? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't even know how long we've gone for. Well, we've gone for two hours now. Yeah, so, <laughs> it, it just it flew. It flew. I talk yeah. a lot, also. Yeah. So no, that that's I. I that I'm fine with that. That's a, a great place to to end it, and we can do a. Yeah around to um at your convenience really yeah i mean honestly just sort of like like poke us and we'll we'll figure it out yeah for sure but th- that's also a good cliffhanger too so yeah. that's that's a that's a good uh good way to end the uh episode so quickly before you go yeah. how about um you talk where can we find michelle all over mm. the web what what you're doing what people can take part of 
Oh, let's see. So uh, I do a weekly connection ritual, which is really a meditation on energy and long distance work. Uh, and that's become something that I just do freely. It's like live streamed on my Facebook and my YouTube and Instagram now. Uh, if you're curious about where any of those are, I, I have links to everything on michellebelanger.com. Uh, and you can find the YouTube and the Facebook and the Instagram and all of um, classes and books and the decks that I create and the music that I do because I do a lot of different things. Um, if you are interested in learning from me, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash haunted. And I have this, this wonderful supportive community of people. Uh, we do classes uh, monthly. There are patron chats, uh, answer questions, and just also, honestly, like it's, it's turned into a community of wonderful people who all support one another too. Like, it's great to like, like I said early on, like I, like I love creating spaces where people can share and hold one another up and dialogue and kind of like co-teach. Yeah. And the, the Patreon has turned into that. Um, the most recent big release has been the 10th anniversary edition of the Dictionary of Demons. Yes which is, I think at this point, 1,700 different proper names of spirits identified as demons. Which loves. I, yeah, okay, yes. I, yeah. I don't, I've never known if I could actually like quote him on that, but we got a copy to Matt Mercer for Critical Role and I got some very excited like direct messages back because Matt liked it quite a lot. And, yeah. you know, because it, it started actually as a gaming reference for me. Like, like I said, I can't separate these parts of who I am, like play and storytelling and fiction and nonfiction, serious research, like all of them reflect back on one another and inform absolutely. one another. And absolutely, I'm, I'm all of the things that I am all at yeah. once. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, any other links or, or anything like that? Oh. Like all, all of these links, like I have all of your links. They're going to be in the show notes yeah. for, for everyone who's um, uh, uh, listening to the podcast or watching the video on YouTube. I'm going to have all the links there anyways. Mm. But anything specifically, anything else that you want the, to talk about? Like The only other thing I would mention would be Inspiration House, a 150 mm -hmm. year old haunted house in Oberlin, Ohio that... I initially bought to be kind of my psychic Hogwarts and because of the pandemic has turned into a space where people can rent it without me being there. Um, we follow all of the strict protocols, but they can engage in all of the stuff in the display room. I have a bunch of memorabilia from paranormal state, uh, a number of haunted objects, a number of ritual objects, a lot of information there. And it is probably, well, for me, it is the most physically active haunting that is not negative that I've that I've personally been in. Um, a lot of physical stuff happens. Things move like legitimately. People have been there, and like the doorknobs will do like yeah, yeah, horror movie stuff. And pretty much all the ghosts are friendly. Like they're just old people who never moved out, and they're very keen on friendly people coming and visiting them. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, but like I said, that all of your links are going to be in the show mm. for everyone listening or, or watching. Um, so, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for being on the Lux Files. I really thank appreciate you. it. We'll definitely do a, uh, a part two. 
And I want to thank everyone uh, who's listening and watching. Um, thank you so much uh, for supporting the Lux Files. This is a new podcast. This is only the, the third episode um, and the second interview. So uh, this is a, an exciting venture. And in the show notes as well, um, there's uh, a link, leilokanzawan.com slash link. That'll take you to all of my links. So you can find me, the Lux files, um, all over social media, whatnot, my online shop. So be sure to check that out. And uh, see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.